It's the Ambiguously Blind Podcast with your host, a guy that's great up hearing, but terrible at listening, John Grimes. Hey, 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 greetings. Welcome back. Thanks for tuning in, subscribing, and supporting the podcast experience. We are joined once again by Chad Foster. He was on a couple of episodes ago, and there was just so much material to get to that we weren't able to fit it into the normal size package of one of our podcast episodes. So Chad is back to expand on some of the things that we talked about. Um, In addition to his book, Blind Ambition, which by the way, there'll be a link to in the show notes. And it's a great way to help support the podcast by using the link in the show notes. Uh, We do get a little kickback here at no additional cost to you. The book is available in print, digital, and uh, audio format, which is how I consumed it. It really is a tremendous read. And when I left with Chad previously, we were we didn't get much into his business successes and uh, how he was able to really find a, a way to take advantage of the disadvantage of some situations that he was, was in with his uh, retinitis pigmentosa vision loss situation. So I want to talk a little bit more about about those things and how he was able really to kind of modify his victim type mentality and basically embrace the discomfort and really have a, a tremendous amount of growth and success that he experienced in the business world. And we also uh, wanted to visit a little bit about his skiing endeavors. Uh, Chad is quite a skier and um, want to find out what it's like to slide down the face of a double black diamond skiing route. So hopefully he can he can walk or ski us through that situation. And then, of course, we we also both have a similar story that we weren't able to fit into the last conversation where our wives were in labor and driving themselves with, with us in the passenger seat of the vehicle. So I don't know. That was a good time for me, and, and I think Chad probably remembers it that way too, but our uh, wives may... Uh, <laughs> May disagree, but the spoiler alert, the, the it all all ends up well. So that's the the happy ending. Hey Chad, thanks for rejoining the Ambiguously Blind podcast. Great to have you back. My pleasure, John. I'm glad to be here. I thought we had a real interesting conversation a couple episodes ago about your book yeah. and uh, life of the Chad E. Foster blind experience, but we didn't get. I don't know. I don't even think we got halfway through the story. Yeah, I don't think we did. We had too much fun before we made it up to, <laughs> yeah, even the halfway point. So I don't even know if this will be enough, if part two will be the end of it, but we're going to see what we can do. There's a lot of things we we discussed, and I encourage, uh, if you haven't heard, to go back and listen. It's a couple episodes ago to uh, chat and I's conversation, and there's a lot of things we talked about of which one of them was how great of a time it is to be blind. You still think it's a great time to be blind, Chad? It really is a good time. It, it's a phenomenal time to be blind. I mean, there's technology that you can use to do your job and to, you know, watch or, or listen to, to content and obtain information. And, you know, we've got guide dogs. We've got Uber. It's a really good time to go blind. It's, you know, it's, it's got legs. You should You should get in. You should get in while you can. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> taking applications, I think. As yeah, you said, exactly. As you said. Got somebody at the back of the room. Come on. <laughs> Get in while you can. 
That, but you know, in the, in the historical context, right? I mean, a hundred years ago would have would have been obviously far more difficult than what it is today. Yeah, absolutely. It coincides, I think, with the information age and technology and all the things that we have at our disposal, which really do uh, maybe not exactly level the playing field, um, but definitely make things more even. And in, even in some cases, give us advantages. And that's one of the things that you talk about in your book, Blind Ambition, um, where we have a disadvantage and we are able to use that to our advantage. There are situations that occur that we can actually be uh, be better off than our sighted companions because of our visual impairment. Yeah, and it doesn't apply just if you're blind. Every person on the planet can take advantage of their disadvantages. It's just figuring out in what context do those perceived disadvantages offer us some differentiation. And so I would offer to you that a blind guy becoming an airline pilot, uh, it's not helping no, us there, right? not a good it's idea. Not, no. not the right context, but uh, you want somebody who can really be an incredible active listener? Well, a blind person is a good place to start. Think about it. What else do they have to do? They're not going to get distracted <laughs> by what their eyes are telling them. So, you know, they're clearly going to be focused on what you're saying. So I think you're going to you're going to find that they're going to be a better listener and someone who doesn't judge somebody based on appearances. Again, exactly. blind people yeah. great at that. Right. We're, we don't look at somebody's somebody's appearance and say, oh, wow, you know, their suit or their clothes aren't fitting well or they're having a bad hair day. None of that. We're focused on the person and the message and the content and who they are. So I would offer to you that while our eyesight may be impaired, our vision to see more deeply who people really are on the inside it has never been better. I agree with you 100%. Yeah. Makes total sense. Yeah. So I think it's, it's important for all of us to find those contexts in which the, the things that we think are disadvantages can actually help us and, and make sure that we bring attention to that and, uh, and put ourselves in position to do more of that because that's where we can really shine a light on our different abilities and things that we may have that can actually become a towering strength. Yeah, and you say towering strength. That's kind of one of the things that I think of after reading the book and you talking about Miles, your uh, first guide dog. He seems like kind of a towering strength to me. You, you mentioned in the book that the, the experience of going to leader dogs and, and getting your first guide dog was kind of a pivotal moment, or it was a pivotal moment in your life, yeah. and where things really changed for your mindset, your well-being, and just kind of your motivation and, and how you did things. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I, you know, I showed up to leader dogs. I was 23 years old. I had just at that time had to flush about 85 hours of credits at the university down the drain because I wanted to go into the medical field. I was in pre-med and couldn't complete anatomy and physiology because there were certain boundaries I had. One was not touching a dead body to figure out what the, where the body parts were. Yeah, and that's kind of what you mentioned too. Uh, a surgeon, uh, a blind guy is probably not a good surgeon either. They probably don't want me. Hey, let me just feel around and see if I can find... <laughs> You know, you don't mind, do you? Can I just poke around? This this feels like it could be the uh, the thing we're looking for. So, look, I had to figure out what to do, and so I switched to business administration, business management, and I thought that was generic enough. I didn't know what I could do, 
So I switched to business management thinking, hey, it's just it's flexible enough so that once I figure out what I can do, at some point I'll identify what I want to do. And when I did that, moving from pre-med to business management, I lost 85 hours towards my major. It's mm, almost three years of work. Yeah. Yeah. And so I get to leader dogs, 23 years old. I'd hit the reset button on my academic career and I show up and it's poor me. I got this victim mentality, poor me, life sucks, it's very hard. And I really had this terrible attitude, this victim mentality when I rolled into Leader Dogs at 23 years old for a few days. And then you know, I started meeting and greeting people around the campus, great people there. Some of the people there you know, they, they really inspired me to rethink my own situation. All of them had vision impairments. All of them were visually impaired. But some of them had even more than that. There were people at there at Leader Dogs who had mental impairments on top of being blind. There were people there who had, di uh, who had diabetes and were on dialysis. And every week they had to go and, and go have dialysis done to them. And then there were these girls there who were deaf and blind. And these girls were getting a guide dog. They were there at leader dogs to get a guide dog so that they could get around. And, you know, for us, we had to talk with an interpreter who mm, would sign yeah. into these girls' hands. And that was the only way they could communicate. But despite these incredible challenges, these brave young women were getting a guide dog so that they could travel independently. And you know what? That just blew me away. Because yeah, here I was, amazing. I was 23 years old. I had all these years of, of eyesight, all of my hearing and all of my kidney function. And so it really forced me to reevaluate my own situation. I was so blown away by the living courage that these girls had and, and everyone there that I stopped thinking about my situation using the, the same filter. I started rethinking my situation. And it, it really forced me to let go of the things that I thought I lacked and really focus on the things that I had. It, it gave me a master class in gratitude. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it, it could have happened any other way for me. It's one thing, you know, you, you read about it in a book, right? It, that's different. You hear somebody talk about it. It's different. When you live with someone for 26 days, and you see those challenges firsthand, it makes an impression with you. It's hard to deny that anymore. It, and for me, I, I learned there that happiness is not a feeling, and it's not an emotion. It's a decision that we all make every day when we wake up. We can choose to deliberately frame our perceptions, or we just allow the circumstances of our lives to determine our happiness for us. So happiness, I've, I've, I believe, I've learned, it's a state of mind, it's a perspective, and it's anchored to our gratitude. And I think just like happiness, success is also a mindset. You either have a success mindset or you don't. You're either willing to accept less than your definition of success or you're not. It really is that simple. And, you know, it, I learned that the, the hard way, one, one, one could say, uh, by losing my eyesight at 21 years old. But I would counter that and say, you know what, I actually learned one of the key ingredients to happiness and success at 23 years old. I think a lot of people struggle with that and try and figure out 
how can I live a happier, more successful life? I feel very fortunate to have learned that lesson at such a young age. Yeah. And you think that you can learn to be happy and or be successful. You may not be born with that mindset, but you can certainly adapt into that mindset. I do. In fact, every evening with our children, my wife and I sit down and we all go around and we say three things that we're thankful for that day. It has to be specific. It has to be non-generic. It has to be concrete. And you can't repeat something that someone else has said. And what it does, I believe it forces us to bring conscious attention to the things in our lives on a day-to-day -day basis that we all take for granted. All of us do, myself included. It's normal. But what happens when you start consciously bringing your attention to the things in your lives that you have an opportunity to have gratitude for, to be thankful for, all of a sudden, you know, that kind of appreciation starts creeping into your muscle memory to where you start reframing your brain. Instead of thinking about what you don't have, it's easier to remember what you do have. We, we all become complacent. Yeah. Um, every day, everybody. And that's a tremendous exercise to bring it all back to the middle. Well, that's what we're hoping to do. I want my children to learn the skill of gratitude. I think gratitude is a skill. I think it can be learned. I don't think it's a feeling. I think it's a, it's a perspective. Gratitude is all about your perspective. So we could, we could all sit around and find a thousand reasons to be a victim and to be unhappy. Or we could spend all that energy and that effort trying to come up with a reason to be appreciative for the things that we have. And that, to me, is the key to, to happiness and, and, and success, is figuring out how do we show up? What's the narrative that we're telling ourselves? What's the, the lens through which we're looking at a situation? I know it sounds funny, a blind guy using a lens metaphor, but it's true, right? It, it is about how you see the situation. And, and um, in, in many ways, you know, my blindness forced me to look at it differently, which has improved my vision. And you can't take yourself too seriously either. And we've kind of chuckled around here about jobs that blind guys shouldn't be flying planes and things. But I think you have to have a pretty good level of, of humor and, um, you know, that kind of mindset to not take yourself too seriously and, and try to have fun in any kind of situation you're in. Look, man, none of us are getting out of this thing called life alive. None <laughs> of us are. No, we're not. We're all going to kick the can at some point. Why can't we have a little fun along the way? I take my job very seriously. I take my responsibilities very seriously, but I don't take myself too seriously. I want to have fun. If I can't have fun while I'm here, what's the point of being here? If, I'm, if I can't have fun while I'm doing my job, do I really want to be doing that job? So I really believe in, in, in taking work seriously, but not so seriously that you can't have fun. And I don't take myself too seriously. I like to I like to have fun, you know, poke fun at myself. And and I believe that with humor comes relatability. I think, you know, it's it's relatable to have fun and, and to to tell jokes and it's disarming and people can have conversations about things that might otherwise be difficult topics. In fact, I use a lot of humor when I'm giving a motivational presentation, when I'm giving a keynote, when I'm giving a workshop when I'm trying to, to reach somebody and I'm talking about a topic that might be difficult for them to hear. Humor is a great tool to use to disarm the situation because all of a sudden people can let their guards down and yeah. people can see that, you know what? 
I'm comfortable enough in my own skin to joke about something that other people might find incredibly challenging and, and frankly has been incredibly challenging. But whether or not I joke about it, that doesn't diminish how much challenge I face. It just, it changes the way that I show up in the situation. My, my, my blindness is no less serious because I joke about it. But the fact that I can joke about it means that I can have fun even amidst some challenging circumstances. And to me, that's one of the best medicines you can have is being able to sort of laugh things off and say, you know what, it is challenging, right? But I'm, I'm still going to have fun along the way. I think yeah. it's really important. Yeah, and try to keep a smile on your face. Absolutely. And I think Miles was kind of your key to that, as you were talking about earlier, that that mindset shift that you had to kind of refocus yourself and maybe force yourself into some more mature ways of thinking in a college type environment. And uh, maybe for lack of a better word, just get your acting gear and let's get this thing going. It's time to go. Yeah, it, well, it, it definitely did. It, it gave me a spark of hope. Because no longer I was walking around, you know, before miles and I might bump into somebody and people would wonder, man, is that guy, is he drunk? Is yeah, what's he wrong with this what's guy? What's going yeah. on? Yeah, is he crazy? And they might be right about the crazy part. Yeah, that's possible. I mean, I'd say that, I mean, given what we're going to talk about me <laughs> skiing, I think people would say that's certifiably crazy. <laughs> Blind guy skiing down a, a black or double black. But, you know, w when I didn't have, when I didn't have miles, I really feel like I was walking around trying to pretend like I could see okay. And I was really trying to, you know, in hindsight, not be authentic to who I am, not own my situation. So having miles forced me to own my situation. When you roll into a university classroom with a 110 pound German shepherd, you better own it. You know what I'm saying? You're commanding some attention when you stroll in with a big German shepherd. And so it forced me to own that situation. And I noticed that it's, it made, accepting my situation a lot easier because I couldn't hide it anymore. I couldn't hide the fact that I couldn't see as well. And so it forced me to just own it and run with it. And Miles made it so much more digestible for everyone else because no longer was I the guy that could be clumsy, could be crazy, could, could be whatever. I was somebody who had a visual impairment and people could, could see that. It was very obvious. And it just made those social situations a lot easier people would were were more prone to reach out and help and they saw the attitude that I showed up with was good they saw my effort was off the chart and so they were willing to help and um and that's when you know I really started taking things more seriously with school and getting my act together and you know relearning how to learn and ended up making straight A's in college from that point forward once I got into the business school made the dean's list for the first time and graduated and got a job offer from a couple of very good companies, ended up accepting a job from a top consulting firm at the time. And so ended up having to, to think about the prospect of moving to Atlanta from, from Knoxville, which is where I was living when I was going to undergrad. Yeah. So you end up making that move and go all into the business world. And it probably wasn't all peaches and cream, um, if you want to take the Georgia thing there. I like that. Um, it was nice. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> probably wasn't all, you know, great right away. There was lots. I mean, I think with anybody, you're, you're out of college, you're learning, you're getting into the professional world, you got to be serious. But walk me through kind of the entry level into your professional career. 
Yeah, it wasn't. You're absolutely right. It was not easy at all. In fact, the simple idea of of moving, right? I, I was starting to think about it as I, I got this great job offer. I'd lived in Knoxville my whole life. So I, I, yeah, I hadn't lived with my parents my whole life. I'd lived out of, out of the house or whatever, but I'd never moved to another city. Yeah, you know so, Knoxville, like the back of your hand, right? You've seen it yeah. personally when, when, when you had more vision. So yeah. you're very comfortable yeah. in that environment that you've been I know people around in. there have friends, I have family. I know the areas. And here I am moving to Atlanta, Georgia, you know, only three hours away. But in terms of metro size and familiarity it was might, might as well have been mars right it was, right. It was uh, totally different and so the more i thought about that and i realized you know what i'm getting ready to move i don't really have a support system i'm gonna have to go in and learn the city i'm gonna have to learn the public transit setup i'm gonna have to figure out how am i gonna get groceries there was no instacart back then or delivery service i'm gonna have to figure out how i get my clothes laundered uh, I'm going to have to figure out how I get to and from work, learn all the routes, get into the building, and then I travel for my job. So I've got to travel in and out of different airports, and hotels, and client sites. And then I've got to learn how to do my job, a very technical-oriented job, consulting with technology, learning how to use, market, sell, price, and even develop and engineer software. And so the more I started thinking about all this, I started getting really nervous. Like, I don't know if I, you know, do I really want to do this? This is very intimidating. And I was scared. Yeah, I was really yeah, scared. And so my, my friends and family, they would ask me, hey, are you excited? Yeah, I'm excited. I'm great. And secretly, what I didn't tell them was I was terrified, John. Mm -hmm. I was absolutely terrified because what if I couldn't pull it off? What if something didn't work? But the one thing I kept coming back to with all the fear of what if I failed was the counter fear. And that counter fear was what if I, if I never know, what if I don't live up to my full potential? What if I regret not following through for the rest of my life? And that's the fear that I realized that I couldn't live with. I think it's important when we're presented these situations in our lives to do the, the time travel exercise. What does future Chad what can future Chad live with and what can future Chad not live with? And I realized that I absolutely under no circumstance could not live with myself if I didn't at least try. Because then I would never know how successful I could have been. If I tried and I failed, well, at least I left it on the field. You know what I mean? I gave it a go. Yep. And if I, if I never tried, I, I would spend the rest of my life wondering having regrets. And I don't, I don't think I could live like that. So I got over the hump, moved to Atlanta, learned the bus and the train system without being able to see, got to know, you know, some of the bus drivers and, and things and figured out how I was going to get my groceries and clothes laundered and all that and in and out of the office. And, and then, you know, the simple aspect of learning the job and learning how to write code and learning how to use technology all of that was it was it was as advertised it was really hard because i was a business guy remember i'd been studying to go in pre-med so you know one year I'm, I'm doing microbiology and anatomy and physiology next year i'm in economics and marketing and finance and you know 
next year I'm learning how, all right, how do we write code in Java and C++ and HTML and all these different technologies. So completely different basket of skills. A lot of people in my class were computer science majors, not class, in my, my uh, recruiting class with, with the, the consulting firm. They were technology majors, computer science and information systems and things like that. I was a business management major. So it was uh, it was daunting. It was daunting. And, and you, know, you, you have to uh, you have to stick with it and sort of embrace the discomfort and realize that, you know what, if I want to achieve my goals in life, I have to embrace the discomfort. It's not always going to feel comfortable. And that's OK. If you're feeling comfortable in whatever you're doing. You're not growing. The only growth comes through comes through discomfort and pushing yourself beyond what you think is possible. That's the only place where you're going to experience discomfort, uh, ex experience growth, excuse me. And that, my friends, is is where um, where life takes place. Life begins outside of your comfort zone. Yeah, it does. And I think one of the one of the areas that uh, helped you really grow was, was technology. And uh, speaking in the in the visual impaired community, uh, there are some technologies that were kind of being born in those late '90s, early 2000s, and you uh, weren't a computer science or information technology major, but I think you you learned how to code pretty good, didn't you? I did. Yeah, I sort of had to because I got into the corporate environment and realized, you know what, a lot of the stuff off the shelf there, for example, our timesheet system. So I was a consultant at Anderson Consulting, which is it's now known as Accenture, huge technology company. What they like to do is take people out of college, people they think have high potential, and then put them on various projects. So enable them with the technology skills to work on various technology projects, whether it's building a website or building an enterprise application and then they will inevitably bill you across you know multiple projects and so one of the things that we had to do was keep track of our time and so that was step number one was hey wait a minute the technology i was using jaws didn't work with our timesheet system so if i wanted to be able to allocate my time and and get paid properly i needed to figure out how to use this really simple timesheet tool which really behaved a lot like a spreadsheet, but it wasn't marked up in a way that JAWS could recognize it. So that was my first introduction to the corporate world was, hey, welcome. Um, we've taught you a lot about technology. Now it's time to go to work and, and put that to practice in our environment. And something that seems as benign as entering your time, just it didn't work. So I had to... Now, was that like a, a software application? It yeah. probably wasn't web-based at that point. So No, it wasn't web-based at yeah, that just point. A local, this was in 2001. Yeah, yeah. it was a Win32 uh, client-side application. Yeah, okay. And so I had to figure out, how do I customize JAWS? So, you know, I start getting familiar with the ways that you can customize JAWS. I start getting the manual on how to write code for JAWS. I start reading the manual and practicing and teaching myself and you know, join a listserv and doing everything I can really to try and teach myself how to use JAWS and how to customize JAWS because I realized very quickly that my lifeline in this new world was going to be the technology that I used on my computer. And if I was not an expert with that technology, 
then I was really fighting with two hands behind my back. Even if I could use it to the best of its capability, including writing code for it, I still had one hand behind my back because I couldn't see. I couldn't see pictures and, and things like that. And and so it let's not let's not mince words. It it's still it's still a challenge, even when you know how to customize it to its fullest capabilities. But if you can get the most out of JAWS and whatever technology you choose to use, my hypothesis was, hey, I could be so wickedly efficient in certain areas that I can make up some ground. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I really started testing that hypothesis. How can I create more efficiency? So using the computer code, not just to read the JAWS, what I need to do, but let's build in some automation for what I need to do on a regular basis too. So I started dabbling with that and that ended up being something that I saw manifest later on in my career. Yeah. There's an interesting story about that in the, in the book about your, your jaws experience. Did, did you get experience or um, assistance from the manufacturer of jaws or were you pretty much just on your own pioneering your way through that? I did go to one of their classes in Tampa at the beginning of my coding journey. This was in 2001. And I did spend, I don't know, three days on site there. But, you know, let's, let's be real about it. Learning how to code when you don't, you know, you don't have any experience with it. It's not a three day thing. It's not a one month thing. It's, yeah, I mean, it's for a, me, it's a it was like of, a, of learning. Yeah. Plus that stuff changes all the time anyway. Yeah, it, it does. So it really took me, you know, by three months, it was starting to kind of make sense. By six months, it was it was making more sense. By by 12 months, I felt like I could I could do some things pretty good. Um, and then, you know, obviously by. I don't know how, how long that was. Let me see. Call it uh, six years, five, six years later, I was doing stuff that people didn't think could be done. Like, you know, when I talk about going in and making Oracle's CRM system work for JAWS, everybody had told me, including the people who made JAWS and the people who made the CRM system, at the time it was Oracle, still, well, it still is Oracle, didn't think it could be done. They just didn't think it was possible because it was such a complicated environment. It was a thin client environment. It had an ActiveX plugin built inside of an HTML web page. So it was a thin client environment. How do you map the labels between those? I figured out how to reverse parse all of the HTML code and tags and tie it to the ActiveX control. And so I'd done that for a customer, like I said, like six, seven years after that. So it was around 2007 or eight when I was working in the business world and that opportunity presented itself and uh, I was able to get a gentleman up and running. And next thing I know, Oracle starts sending me business from that point forward because they didn't think it was possible <laughs> to make it work. Yeah, that's... Uh, it's just an, an, an incredible story uh, to bring to bring Oracle to their knees, I guess. Um, but another example of of where you have a disadvantage that you creates an advantage, and you find this niche and just explode it, right? I mean, just just blow through it. Yeah, exactly. It it helped me there when it, it came to coding for Jaws. It, it also helped me. That same skill helped me at the time I was doing financial modeling on multi-billion dollar commercial outsourcing transactions. So I worked at Computer Science Corporation. I was on the large outsourcing pursuits team for the Americas. And so we would go after deals that are 
if it was smaller than 400 million, we didn't look at it. It went to another team. So most of the stuff we looked at was at least a billion or, or north of a billion. And so you can imagine the financial models we use, the Excel files, was a complicated web of spreadsheets. So the standard set had 115 files. If it was a global deal, multiply that times five or six. And you had to manage the linkages and relationships across all these different files. So I really needed to be able to use Excel like a ninja. And mm -hmm. you know, the, the commercial off-the-shelf support was pretty good, but I needed more than that. And so I sat down and I wrote because I understood how JAWS worked. I had to really understand how Excel worked. And so I studied and created linkages to the backend object libraries between Excel and, and JAWS. And so over 13,000 lines of code later, I was pretty good and efficient with using, with using Excel and, and JAWS and managing this complicated web of spreadsheets. So what I ended up doing there was I got so good at understanding how Excel worked with JAWS that I realized, hey, you know what? I don't have to do everything in the JAWS environment and talk to these comm interfaces. Action, I can actually build a lot of this into automation tools that I can weave directly into Excel. So instead of writing in JAWS language and calling, whether it's methods or procedures or whatever, from the, the document object model into Excel, let me just write it in Excel and automate a lot of what I'm doing on a day-to-day -day basis. So I started doing that and my colleagues and bosses were like, hey, wait, that looks pretty cool. Can, can we use some of that? So I actually started building automation tools for the entire global team where it would literally take a task that would normally take somebody an hour and a half to do, which is going in and relinking a file across all 115 files in our, in our standard set. They could actually push a button on my macro, go get a cup of coffee, and two, two minutes later, it, it'd be done. The, the, the tool would do it by itself. That was one thing that nice. I did. And yeah. I, I got to where I could write formulas automatically based on macros to different sheets. And I, got, I had a lot of fun with it. But, but my point is, had I never needed to use JAWS with Excel, I would have never been forced to learn those COM interfaces. And I would have never been as technical in Excel and never been able to be as efficient with the tools that everybody needed to use. Yeah. And those, those tools served you well, that training and coding, and it certainly propelled you through the corporate environment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because then I, I didn't have to worry about the technology getting the, getting in the way the technology would work for me instead of getting in the way. And I think that's a, that's a huge, huge advantage that allowed me to focus on sort of the task at hand, the business at hand, because now all of a sudden I could focus on the content of the work being done instead of how to do it. You know, I, I like to use the analogy of a carpenter. And if a carpenter is thinking about which tool to use and how to use the tool, then the carpenter is really not cutting in a way that imagines the end during the first stroke. A carpenter really needs to be able to use his or her tool without thinking about it. And that's how I developed the relationship with Excel. I could use it without even really thinking about it, just get into a state of flow. And, and I could imagine what the end state needed to be and just lose track of time and within a couple of hours have all the models built and then you know really think about the business matter at hand. And that, that allowed me to really zoom in on some of the things that we had to think about. 
in a business environment. Because if you think about selling technology in a full scope outsourcing deal, there's all these dependencies of, of technology. And again, because I was so familiar with the technology, it was easier for me to learn about the services we were offering. So for example, you call into a help desk and then that call then if it doesn't get resolved, gets put through to somebody in the, the end user computing area. And then from there, it might get dispatched if it needs to, to the application support team. And then you've got people in the data center and you've got people in mainframe. And, and so what you have to learn to manage the risk of those transactions is the dependencies of the technology business across different towers of service, whether it's help desk or end user computing or data center and, and storage or mainframe and applications. And so I could really focus on those business areas and understand the dependencies between those areas because the technology that I was using didn't get in my way. It actually worked for me, not against me. Yeah, you definitely focused and you... You moved through, you mentioned uh, CSC. Now, a lot of this, the details of your business movements and dealings are, are well documented in the book. Um, and I encourage people to go read that for much more details on that. But long story short, uh, it propelled you through the corporate environment. And uh, I think you did pretty well through that experience, so much so that you've been able to pick up some new hobbies in your life. Like uh, like skiing, maybe a little bit, right? We talked about you being crazy earlier. Let me. I want to talk to you about skiing a little bit. Yeah, it did. It did. It. Um, I guess I should add. It. Um, it took me from kind of sort of that entry level job, trying to understand what it is I needed to do. That you know, before I knew it, you know, I was a senior director and leading the pricing strategy and solutions group for a, a company called SRA. And I was so fortunate to bring in over $45 billion of contracts for the company based on the tools and techniques and strategies that, that I've been using that they asked me, what can we do for you? And I asked if, you know, some, some crazy reason I said, can you send me to Harvard? And for some crazier reason, they said, okay. So they ended up sending me to Harvard and, and that, that developed into um, an opportunity for me to have greater impact with people. And that's when I started learning that I could, I could help people, whether it was writing a book or, or giving a talk. And that's actually right around the same time that uh, right before going to Harvard uh, is when I, I embarked on my first adventure on the mountain, when my, my buddy called me and said, Hey man, I'm in Aspen and they have a program called challenge Aspen where they help people get down the mountain who can't see. And I thought, yeah, it just doesn't sound very safe. I'm, I'm a pretty <laughs> adventurous person, but I don't know. Let me think about it. And so I started looking into it. And the more I looked into it, the more I thought, you know what, I got to at least give it a try. And, uh, and I did and fell in love with it, fell in love with it about eight years ago. And uh, now, you know, we go every year. And this year, I'm getting three weeks of skiing in. We've already done one week in Park City, We've got a week coming up in Keystone, Colorado, and another week in, in Aspen, Colorado. So it's, uh, it's something that I've now I've, I've got it in my blood. It's it's so much fun. And, um, you know, you get to challenge yourself and you get to get out of your comfort zone. As you heard me talk about earlier, I like to get out of my comfort zone and skiing definitely provides plenty of opportunities for getting outside of your oh, comfort zone. man. Yeah. So walk me through this. You're standing at the top of the mountain mm -hmm. and you're on skis, mm -hmm. obviously. Um do you, and you can't see, I've heard you talk mm -hmm. about the fact that you can't see is 
is a benefit here, right? It is a benefit. Yeah, because yeah. I think a lot of people, we were, two years ago, we're, we we try our first double black diamond. I'd never skied a double black diamond before. We're at Cirque Headwall in Snowmass, which is a, a resort in Aspen. And my buddy turns to me. We're at the top of the mountain. We had just taken a picture of all of us. There's about, I don't know, six, seven of us in a group. And we'd taken this picture in front of the warning sign at the top of the run. Great, that says, that says don't do this. <laughs> it says expert <laughs> only, like don't, don't be an idiot, right? And, uh, and so we get ready to release down the, the hill. And my buddy Paul turns to me and he goes, man, you should be really, really thankful that you can't see what's around <laughs> us right now. Because it's absolutely terrifying. It's like everywhere you look, it's this huge pitch, like major grade. You've got rocks everywhere, narrow corridors. It's just, uh, it's a frightening experience to see. And he's sitting there looking at that, looking probably at three or 4,000 feet of elevation. We're at probably 12,500 feet of elevation. So he's probably looking at, I don't know, three or 4,000 feet of elevation that we have to ski to get down. And I'm not looking at any of that. I'm, I'm just focused on hey, I don't have to ski 4,000 feet of elevation. I don't have to ski, you know, this major pitch. I just have to make a left turn. Yeah, just maybe more worried about technique and stuff. It's it's technique and it's bite-sized steps, right? I don't see the full gravity of the mountain top to bottom, which can be very intimidating and very scary. Instead, I'm just focused on the next move. I don't have to ski all 4,000 feet. I've just got to make a left turn. Mm Mm-hmm. And then a right turn. And so breaking it down like that and not being too intimidated by what my eyes are telling me is a, is a huge advantage. And I think, you know, we can all learn from that in our daily lives, too. How many times did you have this big goal? And you need a big goal, like a big vision of greatness of yourself to inspire you to take action. You want something big and inspiring so that you get the energy to get out of bed and chase your professional goals and your personal goals and dreams. But when it's time to, to take that next move, that next action, if you're just focusing on how big of a goal it is and how scary it is, it can prevent you from taking that next step. So I do think it's a, it's a really big advantage just to be able to, yes, you want that big daring goal, but at the same time, if, you focus on, if you're focusing on that, when it's time to execute, it can be too scary and it can prevent you from taking that next step. You got to zoom in on the next best action. Okay. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. You're right about that. But talk me down the mountain now. So what is that sensation like? Well, the sensation is really unparalleled. It's one of the best feelings in the world, but essentially how it works for the benefit of the listeners, it's I'm wearing a helmet with an earpiece and a microphone and it's a good helmet. There's one thing a blind guy needs. It's a really good helmet, you know, because you're probably going to (laughs) fall. And my ski guide will ski behind me and tell me which direction to go. So they'll call for a left turn or a right turn. And so obviously we've got to have trust. We've got to have a cadence. We've got to have great communication to understand the texture of the turn being called. What I mean by that is it, is this, is this a left turn or is this a left turn? Those are very, very different things, right? Because Mm -hmm. it tells you the sense of urgency tells you how quickly you need to react. Mm -hmm. And then we even get the terminology in for how far left and right to turn. Is it just slight tips left? Is it slight left? 
Is it hard left? Like those are all different things. And depending upon how you turn will obviously determine, you know, how you respond, how your skis respond going across the mountain versus down the mountain. And sometimes you want to stay in the fall line and sometimes you, you want to get out of the fall line to shave some speed. But, you know, we, he'll, he'll tell me with the Bluetooth earpiece, he or she what will tell me, you know, kind of how to get down the mountain and all of it gets down to communication. But the, the feeling is just an incredible, incredible feeling when you're going down the mountain, you're not tethered to anything or anybody, you know, being not being blind. I've always been tethered to something for the last uh, 20 something years. You know, it's a guide dog. It's a person, it's cane. It's always something that you're tethered to and out there on the mountain, it's you and the mountain. And it is the most sensational feeling in the world to be, it's a, it's a feeling of free of momentum. And it's a little addicting if I'm being honest, like the feeling of speed and, you know, carving across the mountain. It's, it's one of the best feelings that I know of, but it, it's very liberating. And to be doing that in nature, you know, and God's creation, it's just a, it's an, it's an amazing experience. Yeah. I think I need to try that. I skied as a, as a youngster, you know, normally sighted. I certainly enjoyed that, but I have not been skiing since uh, my vision change. It seems daunting. I think it's more fun. It's got to be more fun not being able to see. I think it'd be boring if you could see. <laughs> if you can see that's, where you're going, what's the fun in that, you know? Yeah, that's very true. <laughs> it's very true. We need to get you out there. We need to get you out there. Okay. I've got some ideas. I've got some places. I know some people. Okay, we'll talk about that. Interesting. Yeah. It's a blast. It's a blast. So, yeah, we're going this year. You know, the first, what, four years I went, it was three days a year. So it didn't make a ton of progress. By year five, I decided, you know what, I'm all in on this. And so started getting, I think this the fifth year, I got maybe around seven or eight days in. And by year six, it's you know, 10 to 14 days. And this year, I'm getting 21 days in on the mountain. Um, nice. I feel like a little spoiled. So yeah, it, you can definitely ramp your game up a little bit the more time you get out there. That's the key is it's reps. Like anything in life, mm -hmm. it's reps. You got to get reps. And and I will say this for anybody listening who is considering this. It's really, 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 really important um, that if you choose to do this, you get a professional to help you learn how to do it. Because the last thing you want to do is try and wing it on your own. And I say this for anybody, whether they're visually impaired or not, I, I take my kids, I take my wife, they're getting a pro, they're getting a pro to learn or they're in a class or whatever. There's no, there's no replacing those first experiences and in, in learning good technique and putting yourself in a good position and learning the mountain. If you don't know what you're doing and you go to the mountain, you can really put yourself in harm's way, not only from a technique standpoint, but also a terrain standpoint, knowing how to avoid certain things, knowing which runs to go on, which runs to avoid, knowing how to get yourself out of bad situations. You find yourself in a really steep run, a lot of moguls. How do you get down the mountain safely? A pro can teach you that and it help you avoid a lot of potentially dangerous situations, potential injuries, uh, you know, just a lot of situations that you can avoid by getting with a pro, learning how to do it, straight from a professional, learn the technique right the first time, 
so that you don't have to unlearn any bad technique, bad behaviors. It, it just, for me, it, it's worth its weight in gold. Mm-hmm. And your, your family is all into skiing too? Wife and kids? My daughter is all into skiing. I'm still working on the youngest, Jackson, who's five. He's not all in yet, but he's, he's only five years old. He will be, I think. My wife just started this year too. She's not all in, but she did tell me, and she's not really super outdoorsy, and she's Brazilian, so she's a she likes tropical climates. <laughs> yeah. And so the fact that she told me, hey, I had more fun than I thought I was going to, that was a win. I'll, I'll take that. It's a good sign, yeah. It is a good sign, because usually the first year or two is really hard, really challenging, because you're falling down a lot. You're expending a lot of energy for not a lot of return. You're picking yourself up a bunch. Because you just, you don't have the technique. When you get good at it, you know, you can have a hard day or an easy day. You get to choose because you have the technique. You can ski some groomed slopes and not expend a lot of energy and it not be that physically challenging. Or you could get on some fresh powder or some moguls or anything like that and and really challenge yourself. But you get to choose. When you're first starting out, you don't get to choose. It's all hard. It's It's physically taxing on the body. And so you have to be really careful about that, making sure, you know what, I mean, let me ski in the morning when I've got my energy levels high and then I assess and do I really want to go out in the afternoon and you know, how sore am I and how are my energy levels? And because when energy levels are low is when you get bad technique, you make mistakes and you get injured. Yeah. But well worth it though. Right. It is uh, it's my go-to pastime. Mm, yeah. Good. I love it. Okay. And speaking of your wife, there was an interesting story that we talked about on our previous episode about the uh we had, we had some something common we both were in the passenger seat of a vehicle that our wives were driving while they were uh, uh delivering or, or in labor i guess is probably the way to say it um for yeah. me my um we were at our home and my wife uh her water broke and was like Okay, we didn't plan for that. I mean, we 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 knew that was going to happen. She was pregnant, obviously, but um, I don't think we had really worked through the got to go to the hospital right now routine. And you kind of had a similar experience. What happened with you? Well, we did. So we were living in Northern Virginia at the time, living west of the district, and my wife. It was a, I want to say it was a Monday night. Um, she was about 32 weeks pregnant, 33 weeks pregnant. Mm-hmm. And we went to the hospital. She thought she was having, she thought she was having, um, you know, she, she thought she was going into labor. And so we, we, we drive to the hospital at night. They ended up giving her some medicine. They look at her and say, look, you know, your, your baby, um, we'd like to wait a little longer. Um, so they, they gave her, yeah, it's too early. They gave her some tributylin and there we are in the hospital. And this is our first born Juliana and we're, we're terrified, you know, we're sitting there in the, in the hospital and it's okay. You know, it's one o'clock in the morning, we go home and we think, okay, thank God, you know, she got the tributylin, Hopefully we can get another three or four weeks. And so we kept thinking about the last thing to develop, they say, is the lungs. So, you know, 
you know, thinking, praying, hoping, wishing, everything that we can get a few more weeks so that the lungs develop and all that. And so she gets up the next morning. And by the time 8 a.m. rolls around, she's like, it's it's doing it again. It's happening again. I need, you know, I'm feeling it again. I'm like, oh, my God, no, you know, no way. This can't be happening. And so she calls her OBG and says, look, I'm supposed to meet you at the office today, but this is happening. And he says, don't come here. Go straight to the hospital. I'll meet you there. Eight o'clock a.m. in Washington, D.C. traffic. Mm, yeah, and no traffic. It's a 40-minute drive to the hospital. We were going to Arlington Hospital in Virginia. We were, you know, out west beyond South Riding in Northern Virginia. So it's a hot minute to get there. No traffic. And so we jump in the car. It's me and my wife and, and her mom. And my wife insists. She's like, I can drive. I'm fine. We're like, okay. So yeah, I obviously cannot drive, not, not a very good driver. So I'm in the passenger seat and it is bumper to bumper traffic. It's not moving. And she's breathing, trying to keep it together, doing an incredibly courageous job of holding it together in bumper to bumper traffic as she's in labor. Mm -hmm. And I was, you know what? I, I felt so helpless. It was like, I, I can't do anything. And so I'm like, all right, what can I do? I've got a phone here. Let me call 911. Let me see if we can get some help here. So I call 911 and I get the people on the phone. And I ask, is there any way that they can send a police escort? We need a police escort. You know, somebody to help us get to the airport safely because of what's going on. I explained that my wife's in labor and, and she's driving and I can. And, and the lady on the phone tells me, hey, just pull over to the side of the road and we'll send somebody. And I pitched that idea to my wife and got, you know, some some colorful language around, no way, I'm not pulling <laughs> over and, and waiting. That's not going to happen. And so I, I turned to the lady on the phone. I'm like, all right, well, if you send somebody, just have them look for us. And they're like, well, how will we find you? And I'll like, well, it will be the silver Jeep Grand Cherokee speeding down the emergency lane of Interstate 66. Mm -hmm. That's us. And that's what happened for the next over an hour. And so we ended up screeching into the parking lot of Arlington Hospital. Probably about an hour, hour and a half after we began, you know, she had driven for an hour and a half in labor, in traffic, all the way over to Arlington Hospital. We get there, she gets admitted, and then we learn pretty quickly that they come out and tell us, today is the day your baby girl is going to be born. And we're like, oh my God, we're, you know, what about her lungs? It's, it's, she's premature, we're so worried. And um, we're sitting there and they're, they're getting her hooked up to all the machines and everything, and everything is sort of fine. Yeah, everything's kind of normal there in the hospital and until it's not. And in an in an instant, everything went from, you know, kind of butterflies and everything's fine and you're hooked up to the machines and nothing to worry about to a swarm of humanity around us because there were some readings. Blood pressure was dropping. Heart rate was fluttering. And so before we knew it, there was an army of people who came into the room where we were at and whisked us all away to the delivery room. And within 10 minutes of that, five minutes of that, they performed a C-section. And I'll never forget 
when uh, when Juliana was born, you know, when we heard her screaming, we're like, thank God she has good lungs, right? <laughs> <laughs> thank God those lungs are yeah. working. And uh, and that was that was it, man. I I could not have been more proud of of my wife for incredible amount of courage you know being able to do that i was in awe of the gutsiness that she had to do what she did in the the face of of uh the the situation obviously our our daughter was born premature and so she had to stay in the neonatal intensive care for 17 days after that which was a challenging period for us but she's she's fine today you know she's at home and uh, you know she's she's still very very talkative, so you know completely healthy and everything. But it was obviously a a, a scary time, you know, as you're a parent trying to trying to navigate that. I remember yeah. sitting there thinking as she was in the neonatal intensive care, like it hit me like a instantly, you know, all the times my parents had told me they had been worried about me, and I just kind of brushed it off because I was naive and ignorant. Oh, yeah. I just didn't know no concept you know? of that. Yeah. And then you have your own and you realize very quickly, oh my God, that's what they meant. It's a, it's a, it's a powerful moment. Yeah, it really is. And, and kind of walk me through the, so what's it like in the, in that environment, not being able to see the monitor or really see the look on the doctor or the nurse's face, you know, can you, you're, you're, you're judging everything on what you can hear. And there, there's gotta be times where there's silence or times where there's, noises that are not indicative of, of what's going on. So how did that work for you? Try to read the energy more so than anything. <clears throat> it's almost like, you know, when you get on a plane, if you feel like the flight attendant's panicking, you've got a problem, <laughs> you know, uh -huh. if yeah. the flight attendant's acting cool and the, like the tone and the energy and everything's cool, I'm pretty cool. And the same thing there, it's, I was fine, really. I mean, I was worried in the hospital sure. until, you know, I hear the the machines like, doo, 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 and it just starts speeding up and people are running in. I'm like, oh, snap, what's going on? You know, this is this is not good. And so there's definitely a sense of alarm and, and um, panic. But at the same time, I know that Evie's looking to me. My wife is looking to me. And so the last thing I want to do is show her panic. So I'm like... Mm -hmm. It's fine. It's going to be fine. We're here. The professionals, they're on top of it. Look how quickly they came out. Everything's going to be fine. And you guys probably have a way of communicating um, just normally anyway that that would prevail in this type of situation. Yeah, we do. But, you know, with uh, everything that's going on with her being in labor, I mean, I, my expectations weren't too high on yeah, that. That's, that's the, all uh, out the window. I guess. Communication <laughs> yes, yeah. front. It's like, yeah, normally we would, but or, or maybe, maybe you can tell in the, <laughs> in the tone of her scream or the, <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. that this is an okay scream or this is a, we better get somebody in here scream. Well, it was, it was at our, out of our hands. They, they it was so phenomenal how they reacted. They were there in, in, um, you know, split second with, and I'm not saying like two or three, literally like eight to 10 people showed up in a matter of seconds of the dials, the instruments changing the tone and the blood pressure dropping on the baby. And it was like, you didn't have time really to do a lot of thinking. But the one thing that I knew is that she was going to look to them and to me to see if she should be panicking. And the last thing I wanted her to feel was 
oh my God, we're in trouble. Mm -hmm. I want her to feel like it's going to be fine because I really believe, you know, it gets back to my belief system. You become the stories that you tell yourself. And if you're telling yourself a story of, oh my God, the sky is falling, then it just might fall. If you're telling yourself a story of it's going to be fine, everything's going to be fine. Yes, it's not ideal, but we're here. There are professionals around us. It's going to be fine. If you're telling yourself that story, you're moving the probability needle in your favor a little bit. Yeah, I can't think of a better way to button up this conversation with that sentiment right there. Uh, there are lots of great other stories uh, in the book, Blind Ambition. So I encourage everyone to go out and read it. There's, there'll be a link to it in the show notes. You can go to Chad's website, chadefoster.com. Find him maybe speaking near you sometime soon. Chad, thanks a bunch for uh, stopping back again. Yeah, sounds good, man. I appreciate it, John. Enjoy the conversation. Thanks for spending time with the Ambiguously Blind podcast. Please rate and write a review wherever you subscribe and connect and share with us at ambiguouslyblind.com. 